Welcome to Why I Hate Your Podcast. These days, there are a lot of podcasts to choose from. This is another one. I'm Crystal, and each week my brother Sean and I meet up to talk about two podcasts and why we hate them, or don't. Join us and we might help you find your new favorite podcast, or save you from wasting time on a podcast you might hate. first podcast we're going to be covering today is Hardcore History. This is a podcast that was created by Dan Carlin. He used to be a radio, uh, not DJ, I guess radio show host, um, I guess back in the 80s. And Hardcore History is specifically a podcast about historical events, but focused on war, war and conquest. Um, hence the name Hardcore History. Uh, The episodes for Hardcore History are generally long-form episodes. Um, Dan Carlin is the host and narrator for all of the episodes, and he also um, releases them in kind of uh, series. So he'll focus on one topic for a number of episodes, uh, kind of really deep diving into that topic. It's worth noting that if you just go and subscribe to the podcast, you won't necessarily see all the historical episodes because he started this project a long time ago. And so some of them are only available for download on his website, but you can still download them and, you know, they'll play in your podcast app. So um, so it's worth noting if you hear us talking about things like Wrath of the Cons or Ghost of the Oz Front, those series of his are part of the Hardcore History Library. They're just not necessarily available in the podcast feed. Um, but yeah, so he's been around a while. It's, it's a pretty well-known podcast. I think he's actually been a guest on some other podcasts like Joe Rogan. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've been listening for a long time for this one. And I think you have listened to it some, you've dipped into it and you kind of dug into it a little bit more for this review. So what are your initial thoughts? Uh, it's one, it's a commitment. Uh, we're talking like Ken Burns level here of commitment. <laughs> this is true. Uh, but but again, it's history, right? Which is not something you can condense down to something, uh, you know, an hour long or something like that. So even his singular episodes could run like four hours. And his, I, I'm not a huge fan of his style. Uh, and I, I mean, I had heard of him before and I had tried a couple of years ago. I think it was the, the Ghost of Oz front that I had tried listening to. And I, to be honest, I couldn't remember the reason, remember the reason why I didn't finish it. But when I went back recently, because we wanted to cover this, went back and listened, and and then I started, you know, listening as far as like a critical eye, and for for my own notes, and one of the things I realized is that it's he's not retelling history, but more or less he's narrating history, which some people would probably find that pretty engaging. I personally couldn't do it because it was almost like reading a George R. R. Martin book where. You take a page to describe, he could take a whole page describing something that you could probably describe in two sentences. <laughs> and I think he kind of relies too much on drama uh, as far, well, a dramatic tone. And like the one I, I listened to was the Celtic Holocaust because that was four hours and it was a singular episode and it only had a certain amount of time. So I couldn't listen to the 16 hours for the, some of the other <laughs> series. And it's his drama kind of. I think kind of pads that time. So uh, one of the things I saw, he's like, what would you die for? Dramatic pause. Would it be for your family? Maybe your, you know, children, possessions, 
what about your land? Dramatic pause. <laughs> and he's very, very, I mean, he is engaging in that way. And I think if you like him, you'll like the podcast. But if you're listening to it about the Celtic Holocaust, you're probably going to be like, okay, when are we going to talk about the Celtic Holocaust? And so, and I, and I guess his whole point is he's trying to kind of give you an idea, kind of like almost a a background feeling why the Celtic Holocaust happened, why the Celts were such, you know, uh, mighty warriors, if you will. And within the first hour of the podcast, I'd only learned maybe, one, that they believed kind of in reincarnation and that they were taller than the Romans. And that's the only two things I really <laughs> learned. And I was like, okay, I just, I, I couldn't, it just took too long to get to the meat of it. And I, I just... I don't know. And the thing is, like, you could say things like Jocko Willink, who is, some people could say he's dramatic. He's just more intense. You know, it's like, when my alarm goes off at 2.30 in the morning, what's the first thing I think of? Leadership. You know, and that's just, he's super intense, but that could probably be drama as well. But I think Dan just relies too much on drama. And it, it's something I just couldn't personally get past. Yeah, so I think that's a combination of two things. I think it's a combination of his background in radio. Right. So he definitely has the, a really great radio voice um, and he could change his voice. Right. Like one of the things I like about the way he presents things is when he's quoting from a book, he immediately goes into a completely different voice. It's not like a, a voice acting thing. It's just a different tone, a different cadence, a, a higher pitch. It's like he's turning on a radio voice. And so you can always tell when he's that way. You know, it's easy to differentiate with a single narrator when he's reading something or when he's just talking. Views on Roosevelt run the gamut. Francis Pike, in his book about the Pacific War, Hirohito's War, talks about Roosevelt and points out that the guy is a hard man to figure out. He writes, quote, At the best of times, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a difficult man to read. Henry Wallace, his former vice president, said of him, now Wallace speaking, he doesn't know any man, and no man knows him. Even his own family doesn't know anything about him. Now quoting Roosevelt, I am like a cat, he said about himself. I make a stroke and then I relax. Pike says, quote, Loved and respected as a leader, seemingly happiest in the company of women, he was an enigma, detached, enigmatic, and ruthless. While flying over Cairo, Roosevelt glanced out the window and said, Ah, my friend the Sphinx, end quote. But you're right. He he does insert a certain amount of drama. But I think that's kind of the whole point of this podcast is to take things that seem kind of cold and on the page can be very boring or seem like they're so far in the past that, you know, it's hard to relate to it. He wants to bring that to you in a way that's like, let's let's experience what this was actually like and so uh, one of the, in my opinion his best series and i think Cel the celtic holocaust episode was good but it's not one of his best i will say that um his to me his best p series is blueprint for armageddon which i think is 30 plus hours it's like 10 episodes each one's three to four hours long um i don't know if it's exactly 10 but it's a long series and it's about world war one and it is one of the most harrowing things I've ever listened to because he incorporates a lot of, of recounts from people who were there. And I don't know, it just puts you in World War One in a way that like I had not experienced from any history book I've ever read. 
But it does take time. He takes his time getting there. He's dramatic about it. It pays off in when the story, like I think, I think Celtic Holocaust, it was a little harder for that to pay off as well as it could. But it pays off in spades in Blueprint for Armageddon. I mean, there was times I was sitting there, like I was cleaning house and I would just stop and stand there like with my mouth open, like, holy crap. Um, So I do think it is, to your point, it is a commitment. And if you're in a hurry to get to the facts and get to the information, you're right. This is not going to give you that. Like if you want to quickly learn about, you know, Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan, the debate rages on, um, you know, listening to his Kinda series, like Wrath of the Khans. Gigawatt. Yes, exactly. His, uh, his episodes on the Wrath of the Khans aren't going to get you there super quick. That's for sure. Um, but he's going to make you feel it. Like he's going to, he hit the, and I feel like that's part of his goal. He's never stated as much, but like, I feel like his goal is to make sure that you feel the impact of these events as much as you can. And, in fact, he recently was part of a project. It was a VR project related to World War One, I, I believe. Um, and he was a, a key player in kind of designing what that experience would be like because it was supposed. I mean, he wanted to make it worse than it was. Like, I mean, I mean, worse than what? Not worse than what the war was. He wanted to make it like so realistic that like it probably would have like giving some people some medical issues afterwards or traumatic, you know, PTSD afterwards. And so they're like, now we got to tone it down a little bit. But he's really interested in what was the experience like? What was it like to be these people in this place at this time? But to your point, that means he comes off as super dramatic sometimes. Right. Well, and I think, I think approaching this, his series as a podcast may even be a mistake for some people. You need to approach it a more, more like this is an audio book. Yes. Because Agreed. a lot of this stuff does sound like something that you would be in a book. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever read like Killing Kennedy or not Killing Kennedy, uh, but it's of that series. I, the, the only one I read was Killing Lincoln. And it's kind of written almost as a fictional story, but it's not a fictional story. It's kind of hard to describe, but um, you're almost you're almost like in the eyes of the characters who are part of the story of Lincoln being killed. Um but it's uh, like as much fact as possible. So for some reason, it just kind of reminded me of that to a degree where it was more of a, if this was a book, I think it may be more palatable for me as opposed to thinking of a podcast, right? And and maybe that's more of a mistake on my part to think of it that way uh, or to, to approach it like a podcast. So, well, to be fair, it is published as a podcast, so it, it's right. not you're not mistaken to be thinking of it that way. But I think you're absolutely right. Like he writes it like a book, and that's right. one of the downsides of this podcast is that if you're a fan, like I'm listening to the the current series he has, um, uh, the, the Rising Sun of the East. I can't remember the name of the podcast, but it's specifically this series is about the um, the Pacific Theater for World War II, and you know, when you're listening to these things as he's releasing them, you might go a half a year to a year between episodes. Like in some cases, it's been that long. So he approaches this like writing a book. Uh, mm-hmm. He writes the script. He does the research to that level. So I think audiobooks probably a really good comparison for this. And I would also recommend not starting a series until he's completed it. Because sometimes it's like you have to go back and re-listen to it anyways to remember right. where he left off. 
Right. And, and, and I'm sure everyone's read books where you could tell that the author is wanting to stretch it out. Like they know the chapter should be longer or they know the book should be longer. And so they kind of just fill in unnecessary dialogue, not dialogue, but just, it's just, there's a lot of unnecessary filler in the book. And I'm not talking about like side stories, just simply just the way it's written. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I think that's kind of like one of the great things about Stephen King's writing is that he, he doesn't ever need to pad anything. He's just the master of description, but it feels like as if, if approaching this as a podcast, it's like, he feels like it has to be four hours long. And so he's just going to take it slow methodical and just talk about things that don't really you know like you say there's a payoff right but to me it's like it just takes a while to get going and i feel like he's it's almost like he's trying to pad the time on purpose and 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 that's probably definitely not his approach but if you were to say oh this guy is reading a and and as far as that's kind of like in the scope of a podcast i feel like he's a that's what he's doing Whereas a book, this would definitely feel more natural, though. Yeah, and I think I could see that perspective. I I would I would debate that though because I would like when you talk about those times when there's filler and there's discussion because he'll do it. He'll he'll say he'll say you know well let's talk about this for a minute. And he'll talk about um, he was talking about Alexander the Great's mother in in one episode and he was like you know like who would you cast in that role? And he'll go off on kind of this tangent about you know this character that is is so important to history but doesn't get of a lot of attention, right? And so you know, he'll spend a lot of time talking about that and and why she was important and you know I see her as so and so and so there's a little bit of a conversational element that comes into some of those pieces. It's, you could argue or not necessary, but to me, I think again, every time he does that, and I'd, I'd, I'd have to go back and listen to Celtic Holocaust, but it seems to me like every time he does that, it's in service of making sure that you understand some aspect of the story or some person in the story in a way that like might get typically get glossed over. Um, right. That's one thing you can say for him is he doesn't gloss over anything he covers it all (laughs) well and 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 to kind of go back on that celtic holocaust episode one of the things he had mentioned about you know that the celts were much taller by a good four to six inches on average than the romans and he kind of said okay as a roman soldier you're much well like more equipped but then you've got this savage right who doesn't really believe in death right and they are six inches taller than you and you're going to mm-hmm. be fighting them in hand-to-hand combat. Like, what does that do for you? Or what, what does that do to your morale, fighting mm-hmm. against these people, or to prepare to fight against these, against these people? And it takes 20 minutes to kind of get to that point. Right. <laughs> and I was like, okay, did, I don't know if we needed 20 minutes to get to that point. <laughs> but, I mean, and he was effective in, you know, kind of getting your head inside, or getting you inside the head of, like, a Roman soldier to think, oh, gosh, you know, why would I want to find an army of these six foot tall people when everyone here is five, six? Right. So, you know, I, I get it, but I just felt like it just took way too much to get to that point. Right. Well, and it's funny you say that because in other, other podcasts we've talked about, one of the things you value is getting to the point like quickly and, and without any fluff. And this, this does have a little bit of fluff because it's, it's very Ken Burns, Ken Burns. I think that was a great comparison is that he spends a lot of time making sure that, you know, 
not only is he telling the story, but he's giving you all of this color and he's giving you all of this perspective. And he and he wants to make sure that you don't skip over something that he feels is important to the story. And generally, I trust him with that, because, again, on some of these super, super long series where he goes into a level that like like I said, the World War One series, I I gained a completely different perspective of World War One then and you know that could be i'm an american and we were much more involved in world war ii so we tend to focus on that both from a a, you know entertainment perspective as far as film books tv documentaries whatever but world war one of course being the great war was much more traumatic for the europeans and like listening to that series made me understand why and I know you're a big Tolkien fan. A lot of, as he was describing some of these events, I, I saw in my head, knowing that Tolkien served in World War One, like where he got a lot of what he wrote into Lord of the Rings and hit that series was from his experience in World War One, And like, and I don't even remember if he mentions that, if Dan mentions that in the podcast, but hearing these very visceral accounts of these bodies in these, you know, water and chemical filled trenches and these these mud pits that you know would just suck a man down and you know like his his description of it is so incredible and it mostly it's it's not even him describing it he's reading retellings from people who were there um like that that series in particular to me stands out as some of his best work but he's I will say, you know, not all of his series, like, again, Celtic Holocaust may not be one of his best works. Um, It is good, and it's definitely representative of his library. I just don't think it's the top. So you might be a little bit um, hemmed in by that fact that that's that's the one you listen to. But I will say if if you... actively disliked it, then you probably won't love his other series. Um, But again, I think it's important to point out, as you noted, that if you approach this more as an audiobook, it's a different experience than if you're expecting it to be a podcast, which is, I think, is a fair criticism. Well, and the thing is, too, is like a lot of podcasts you can listen to while you're doing things, right? Uh, You know, doing dishes or, uh, you know, exercising and walking the dog. You can have a little bit more focus on it. But if Mm -hmm. you're doing just chores and whatnot, it's there are podcasts that are great for that kind of uh, activity. But I feel like his podcast, you really actually have to sit down and listen to it and put your full attention to it, which with the time commitment required of it, it, it for me, it's kind of a hard pill to swallow as a podcast, right? And now I do have audiobooks I want to listen to. And part of me is like, well, I, I have to listen to this like an audiobook, but I have other books that I want to read. And, uh, and so for me, as far as just how my life is structured... I just couldn't find a pl- I would not be able to find a place to put this to be able to finish like his full World War One series or something. It just because to me, it's not an a podcast. And and this is coming from a history buff. Like, I like to think I'm much more well versed in history, you know, especially World War One, World War Two, Roman history than a lot of people are. And I guess maybe that's the reason why I want the no frills part of it is that, you know, I, I think I have an appreciation for some of the context, but, you know, I, I just want to learn more facts and um, I, I just don't feel like I can get that with this podcast, at least not in a quick podcast form. So I think that's just kind of more of my challenge. If I didn't have, you know, a backlog of audiobooks to go through, um, maybe I would give it another chance. But at this point, I just 
I don't know if I have the time for the commitment to experience the payoff that you speak of. Yeah, I think if you were gonna if you were gonna approach it that way, you'd have to think of like his Blueprint for Armageddon series as a book about World War One, and that's fair because mm-hmm. it's about the length of an audiobook. I mean, the, like I said, I think it's thirty plus hours, um, and. You know, for me, I can listen to him while I'm doing something like house cleaning, something I don't have to think much on, uh, walking the dog. But to your point, if it's something where I, like, I'm working and listening to a podcast or I'm, um, you know, doing something that requires thought, this is definitely not one for that kind of activity because you, you do need to pay attention. Um, you'll miss important things if you're not fully focused on it or, you know, focused enough on it to catch everything. So, um yeah, you know, it's a fair criticism. I think in the days, and I would imagine his podcast is the type of podcast that has been hurt by the lack of commuting due to the whole COVID thing. Like mm-hmm. so many people yeah. working from home and not commute. Like this is the kind of podcast like would be great for a commute. Um, if you're somebody who like, you know, like we used to be when we had to drive 45 minutes to and from work every day, um, this is the kind of podcast you could easily listen to and be engaged with. Um for that kind of that kind of experience you know commuting is great because it doesn't require a lot of thought it just requires some some focus on you know your driving or whatever and if you're commuting on a train or something it's even less less work from you um but i would imagine his podcast is one that's probably suffered a little bit in listenership with the lack of commuting because to your point it's if you're doing something else that requires some part of your brain to think about and and focus on, you're gonna you're gonna miss a lot with this podcast, right? And 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 because it's so long, it's hard to get it in digestible bites. Uh, yeah, which I mean, and and for me, that's kind of generally I think that's how most podcasts are. Even the ones that are series, each episode is in a digestible bite, um, and whereas. This episode, you have one episode that's like three and a half hours, four hours long, not so much. And I think, it, it, to be honest, I think the podcast format probably hurts him more than anything because, it, to, and I'm sure he probably is an author. Do you know if he's actually written books? I don't know. I actually don't know. I think he may have written a book or he might be writing a book. I mean, I feel like most of his podcast series could be a book. Like he could right. literally just take his script and publish it as a book and it would work. But I don't know if he's actually a public, if he's published a book before. Right. That's a good question. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just, you know, I think it's just, it's just too big for a podcast. Uh, and I think marketing as such is just kind of the wrong step for him. I mean, personally, and, and again, I may be uh, highly, you know, un- unjustly critical of it, but that's just kind of my takeaway of my initial listening. And maybe one day I will be able to, you know, dedicate the time I, I need to to be able to listen to that on top of all the other podcasts that I listen to or you know, books that I have backlogged. I did check it out and he does have a book called The End is Always Near Apocaly- Apocalyptic Moments. Uh, hmm. So he does have a book that's published and there is an audiobook version, which now I'm like, <laughs> I think I want to listen to that. <laughs> um yeah, I, I I can understand that. If you're going into this expecting a typical podcast, that is not the experience you're going to have, and you're going to be kind of taken aback. I will add, he does have a, a sister podcast, I guess, called uh, Hardcore History Addendum, and those are generally an hour or less. Uh, well, 
an hour to an hour and a half, maybe. His most recent one was an interview with Tom Hanks, um, because I think Tom Hanks had a movie that was being released via Apple TV uh, about a sub commander. And so he and he's a big fan of hardcore history. So he had him on and uh, they kind of nerded out about war history. Uh, but he'll have interviews on that most of the time. Occasionally he'll he'll focus on. In fact, I want to say the discussion about Alexander the Great's mother might have been a, an addenda episode because it didn't quite fit into his Alexander the Great series. But he wanted to spend a little bit of time talking specifically about her. I want to say that was an addenda episode, if I remember off the top of my head. But so that's one that's a little bit more digestible. And it's just kind of off the cuff, like I said, either interviews or kind of little subtopics that don't quite fit into his uh, full series. But but yeah, it is not your typical podcast. It is not, uh, you know, you listen for an hour and you're like, okay, I'm good. You know, it's it's a, com- a huge commitment. Um, but I like it so much that when he drops a new episode, it goes to the front of my queue and I will spend three to four hours listening to it because I don't think he has an episode that's less than three hours in any of his series. They're all long, long form. <laughs> right. And I, and I think, honestly, it does say something that I think people who really do like hardcore history probably listen to it for him rather than the subject. Uh, whereas when it comes to like historical podcasts, I'm going to look for uh, look for podcasts based on subject as opposed to who it is. Now, granted, that it may be a terrible podcast because the person's not very good, but the subject's going to be more of a driver for me than the actual personality uh, or the host that is conducting the podcast. And I think with Dan Carlin, I think a lot of people appreciate him and who he is and how he does it, and they're more willing to listen to a historical podcast because it's him. Uh, yeah, I, uh, possibly, possibly. I would say I think the reason I like listening to him is because I like those topics. Like, I like... like Celtic Holocaust for me I did listen to that one it's not a topic that I'm all that interested in so I did listen to it because it's Dan Carlin but I didn't enjoy it as much as the others because I am much more interested in really honestly World War One and World War Two history although I did find his Wrath of the Khan series fantastic even though I'm you know I you know I learned whatever I learned in school about Genghis Khan I didn't you know know a whole lot about the entire family and and he did a great job giving me a lot more context on that I guess that is an argument towards the fact that I listened to it for him but I I would say I listened to it for his take and his way of communicating the events um, because I find it super engaging and super kind of well harrowing in some cases yeah, and I mean, and there's something to be said about that. I mean, and for me, like, I enjoy reading like history books as opposed to, uh, you know, especially like the Soviet Union. I've read a lot of books about the Soviet Union, and the ones I find I enjoy the most are the ones that are read more like a history book than some kind of, uh, lit- almost like a, a literized fiction, I guess, uh, uh, story of the Soviet Union. Um, and that's probably the reason why I love the Silmarillion so much uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien is that a lot of it reads like historical documents as opposed to story. And I guess maybe that's just kind of like my straight to the point kind of nature, I guess. Um, right. But it, I, I can appreciate I can appreciate what he does and how he does it. Uh, but it just I may not be just the, the, the audience for him. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's it's it comes down to how you like to digest your information when it comes to history. And history, for me, 
just the facts has always been kind of boring. Like it wasn't my favorite topic in school unless I had a really good teacher or unless the medium in which it was being presented was really engaging. So I think that's why it works so well for me um, is because he gives me a lot of that, uh, I don't know, I guess to your point, dramatic retelling of the events in a way that I find super engaging. He would be a great history teacher. Oh yeah, he would. He really would. And he's super knowledgeable. I mean, he does his research really i mean he'll quote i think in one series he might quote from 15 to 20 different historians like the guy does his research so you can't you can't fault him there but i will say one other thing i'll note is we've talked about this on some of the other podcasts he is independent um all of his monetization comes solely from anybody because he'll ask at the end of each episode you'll get a clip asking you know a buck a show is all we're asking um, and you can go to his website and donate there. But he doesn't do ads. He doesn't do any kind of monetization other than that just very unobtrusive request at the end of the show. If, if you thought this was great, go donate, donate a dollar, um, which is pretty reasonable considering the amount of work he puts into it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of there's not a lot of interruptions for ads and things like that. Yeah, which it, to me, it seems like that's becoming more rare. Yes, much more rare. Yeah, with the with some of the larger networks being, you know, just peppering their podcasts with ads, it's it's refreshing to be able to listen to, like you said, three to four hours of uninterrupted podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a little tough. So, I guess uh, your uh, your rating is probably going to be pretty easy to guess. Yeah, I don't hate it. Uh, I will say there's specific episodes and or series that aren't my favorite. Um, that may have been a little more of a struggle for me to get through just because whether the topic was something I wasn't as interested in or I just wasn't as engaged in in the presentation of it. But the ones that I have loved, I will re-listen to. And I will tell you, I have listened to Blueprint for Armageddon twice. And like I said, that's over 30 hours. That's how good it was. So so yeah, I don't hate it. Uh, I will eagerly await even if it takes a year the next episode in his current series um, and so uh yeah yeah no this one this one i like a lot yeah unfortunately i might have to say i hate it uh, it and I, I had a big huge caveat to that simply because i could like like i said before i appreciate what he does and i could see the attraction to it but just for my own personal taste i don't think it's a podcast that i could really sit down and listen to and, uh, and 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 dedicate the time to. So I would definitely say at least try checking it out, but it's just for me personally, it wasn't for me. All right, our next topic is on a podcast called The Soundtrack Show. And this is an iHeart radio podcast. It started out as a How Stuff Works podcast um, as part of the How Stuff Works network before it was acquired by iHeartRadio. And it's hosted by a musician, composer, voiceover guy named David W. Collins. Um, And it's basically a show where he focuses on film scores and composers and it's kind of a mixed format. In some episodes, he'll focus on specific composers. He's done a John Williams episode. He did an episode on Max Steiner and uh, Korngold. Um, 
And in some episodes, a lot of his episodes, he'll focus on a specific film score or soundtrack. And that can include a song soundtrack and a score type of soundtrack. Um, And he approaches it from the perspective of a composer and a musician, but also a fan of movies. Uh, He is our age, a.k.a. in his 30s slash 40s. He's kind of a child of the 80s, so he does spend a lot of time with movies. He's done a lot of movies that are from the 80s and 90s, uh, which is was kind of a rebirth of the Korngold style of uh, soundtracks and scores. So um, he does really detailed breakdowns. He's done a few episodes where he does a kind of listen-along track, which you can play while you're watching a film, and he'll kind of talk to the score and what's happening with the music in the movie throughout the movie. Um, And yeah, so this is one I found through the How Stuff Works network before it kind of became an iHeart podcast. Um, And wanted to get your thoughts on what you thought. I think you listened to the... Back to the Future series that he did, the first Back to the Future movie. Yeah, and, and Jaws. Um, oh, and Jaws. Okay, great. Right. Yeah, I'll definitely be listening to more because uh, I thought it was really engaging. And this is coming from a person who I'm not a big music person, right? Like, I could appreciate movie scores. I, I love movie scores, uh, but I'm just not a big music person. Like, I'm not the person who always has to have earbuds in my ears listening to music 24 uh, 7. That's just not me. But I really appreciated this because he goes into music theory and he's able to explain it for somebody who doesn't really understand music theory, uh, which is something I really appreciate. So in in kind of what you mentioned is he has kind of a structure to his show where he kind of gives background on the production details of the movie, not just about the music, but also just the movie as, as a whole. But it is a really good way of like talking about the music and then talking about, you know, production kind of uh, background uh, he kind of just switches between the two, but it's very natural though. And so now you're learning about just interesting things, trivia about the movie, you're learning about how the music was composed and, uh, and you know, how it came to be where this composer was matched with this movie and because of these connections and all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of like how the sausage is being made in movie production a little bit. And, uh, it's, it's, so you learn stuff about the background of the movie, but then he'll actually go into, okay, this is why it was composed the way it was composed. And he actually breaks it down almost sometimes note by note, which I really appreciated. Yeah. And I am someone who's, um, like a a film score nerd, not, not so much in, in the, the composition style or the, the history of it, but just, I love film scores and I love to listen to them and they play a huge part in my experience of a movie. Um, I've owned a ton of films. Like I would, when I was a kid, you know, that'd be the first thing I do. If it was a movie I loved, I'd go buy the CD of the score, you know, um, you know, coming from that perspective, I expected it to be about the score, but I was really impressed in terms of how he, you know, you can describe how a piece of music helps the scene or kind of sets the scene, but he will break it down to, to, you know, to your point, note by note, like if you listen to these notes, they tell a story and it's the story of the movie in a way that like that sounds corny when you hear it, but then he actually breaks down like the notes move in this way. And he did it with, I think, Star Wars, he did it with Back to the Future. And like, that's representative of the storyline of the film. And when you hear it, you realize that you're like, whoa, I didn't even like, I didn't make that connection yeah. when I listened to it. I just thought it sounded good, you know, with the movie. 
This theme, first of all, tells a great story. Remember all the way back to our very first episode titled Great Melodies Tell Great Stories? I use this theme to illustrate that. The theme has these two big interval leaps, but they are just slightly different or changed. It starts here, goes down, and then it goes back up, and it's slightly different. Again, you start here, then you go down a fifth, or back, and when you pop back up, you're not on the fifth, you're a half step away from that. Right? You started here. So, this is uh, uh, on a tritone here. Or a sharp four, which is right next to the fifth. Almost the same, but altered. So, traveling through music intervals, it turns out, alters the melody. The same way traveling through the past alters the present. He really finds some nuggets in there that, you know, even if you're a film nerd or a a music nerd, you're going to be really impressed with the level of depth that he goes into. Right. And and what was interesting was that he gives comparisons too. like one of the things I found really interesting on the Back to the Future one was it it you can give a sense of unease in a very subtle way by just changing one note. And he'll actually have examples where literally it's like maybe one or two notes difference where here we're providing closure. And here we're providing kind of an unease or there's not a closure, which, you know, makes the viewer want to have closure. And so it's these very subtle, small changes. Or instead of using a string, you know, a woodwind was used here and it could change the complete dynamic of it. Uh, Or a very, you know, like here's a string composition of Marty's theme and here's kind of a military march, which provides you know, this kind of emotional connection to that scene that's going on at the time. And it's stuff that you don't really notice when you're watching it because it's kind of more of a complete picture and you're just taking it as a consumer. You're just getting this whole picture. You don't really think about the music that much. You know, it's there. It's affecting how you're viewing it, but you're not really thinking about the musical theory behind it. But because he does that, it really makes you appreciate the film score even more. And like Back to the Future and Jaws are excellent movie scores. And I could sit there and listen to them without the movie and be like, that's a really great score. But then when you put it in the context, how they're using all the scenes, you're like, wow, that's really I, I appreciate it even more, which is something I think is fantastic about his podcast is that I just think it helps you know just how how difficult this art actually is. And to me, it almost because there's some people who are just natural musicians, natural composers, and it makes me appreciate like how their brain works a lot more than uh, than just saying, oh, wow, they make a good melody. I I will say with this podcast, I challenge you to listen to an episode or a series of episodes on a movie and not want to go watch that movie again. I think every single episode that I've watched, that's about like if I have that movie, I've ended up watching it in the next couple of days after I listened to it because, you know, you hear and he's really great about interspersing clips that illustrate what he's talking about. So he'll he'll say, you know, like to your point, there's a particular theme in Back Back to the Future where it's played many different ways. I think Mm -hmm. he said it's played like, I think, 30 plus times in the film, but it's done in different ways. Sometimes it's subtle or sometimes it's almost got like a dread sound to it. And then other times it's really sweet. And then other times it's really like with the military march, you know, it, it becomes sort of an action set piece. And you really do, to your point, get an, a new level of appreciation for these composers. It's not just that they make beautiful music or really great music that helps the scene, 
but they help tell the story in a way that I don't think I fully appreciated until I started listening to this podcast. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that uh, I'm a big, huge video game nerd, and I love video game music. I think that's an art that's underappreciated by a lot of people, because uh, there is some fantastic uh, video game composers out there, and but their approach to music has to be much, much different, kind of like, as opposed to anybody who's doing, I would say, I would say it's closer to like a, a film score, uh, how they have to approach it, than just like somebody who's just com- composing a complete piece, you know, to play an orchestra and that's it. And mm-hmm. there's actually a really great YouTube channel. It's called 8-Bit Music Theory, which is it, very similar. And I don't know, maybe he was inspired by the soundtrack show, but uh, where he does the same thing with video game music. And I, I noticed that the musician is there to help, like you said, kind of tell the story. And what really surprised me about it was that, at least in Back to the Future, was that they didn't, the, the producers and the writers and the director didn't hear the compositions until they were recording, which kind of blew my mind that they just yes. kind of gave him this blank check just to do it, which I have a feeling maybe some directors may want to nitpick, you know, scores to death because they want complete control over it. But they gave, um, I'm losing my name. I'm losing the name of who did Back to the Future. Alan Silvestri. Thank you. Yes. They just kind of gave him carte blanche. Just said, just make a big, right? And they fully trusted him on that. And I'm glad that they did that because it, and looking at his all of his work since then, it, it just kind of makes sense why he's a great composer. Well, and you can certainly understand why Robert Zemeckis has used Alan Silvestri in every single yes. film he's done since then. Because if, if literally the only direction you gave this guy was make the score big, and he came back with this score, you're like, okay, well, I'm never working with anybody else yeah. because <laughs> he, well, did, he really delivered on that. And, and I had heard Goldsmith and Zemeckis both say that Back to the Future would not have been as successful as it wasn't for the soundtrack. And honestly, that that comes down, I mean, Jaws is another great example of that. Like, that film had had a lot of challenges. And while it is a great, great movie, the score makes a huge impact on that. And everybody knows that. They think about the, you know, the the Jaws theme. And, you know, of course, everybody in their head immediately hears that when they think of that movie. But one of the things I loved about his episode on Jaws is he really spent a lot of time talking about, you know, and this this was not new per se, but it was something that wasn't common in film at the time, was this whole concept of light motifs for a specific character. And there are scenes, which I had not picked up on this, but there are scenes where as the the action moves between characters, their own themes get interwoven into the scene along with them. So like when, you know, it cuts to Quint, you hear a little bit of Quint's theme, it cuts to, you know, and all of it's interwoven together in one track. It's a seamless piece of music. But you're getting these little character bits within the track that just, it just makes you step back. I mean, we all know John Williams is genius, but like you don't really fully appreciate it, even though you love the score and you think, boy, that movie had a great score. To hear the depth into which they put that thought into it and carefully kind of wove all that together is just, it's freaking mind blowing. Yeah. And, and, and with that kind of revelation, like I, I can easily go back and think about scenes like maybe in Jurassic Park and Star Wars where John Williams still did that. And oh, yeah. it's like, oh, you're right. He does do that. And I didn't even really listen to the soundtrack, but I can almost like even when you're talking about Jaws, like I can picture it in my mind right now. What scene, you know, that where it is switching between the characters on the fly. And yes. I mean, and John Williams is, is just a master of uh, of that as well. But it's just, just stuff you just don't think about. 
right? Yeah. And that's what I love about this podcast is that it's just it's stuff that you just don't ever think about, and you and it, when these stuff is revealed to you, it's just it, it's like I said, it's mind blowing. It's like oh my gosh, you know this is this is a level of talent that I could ever achieve. <laughs> and I don't know if it happens to you, but when I was listening to. And this is true of every episode I think of this podcast that I've listened to, but when he he'll he'll talk about, okay, here's what the the composer's doing, and here's how he's doing it, and then he'll play it, and I'll get goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Now I've seen Back to the Future. I don't know how many times I've seen Jaws more probably than any other movie I've seen because it's one of my all time favorite films. But when I hear it played back after he's explained, you know, what what the composer is doing here. I'll get goosebumps every single time. And again, that's why after after I listened to the episode, I'm like, I got to go watch that movie again. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I found interesting, too, is that he explains the importance of a lack of music as well. Yes. Which is, I think, something that a lot of people just don't think about. Again, you know, Back to the Future, there's large sections at the beginning of the movie where you don't ever really hear much music. And the same thing with Jaws. There's really not a ton of music mm-hmm. in it. Um, and it's actually really important because I think it does give the music that's there a lot more impact. And it's just nothing I would have ever considered to be an important part of the film. And he points out that, um, you know, the first part of... of and this is something contextually I think is important, if, especially if you weren't watching movies at that time in the 80s. He points out, you know, like to, you, to your point, he, the beginning of uh, Back to the Future doesn't have any score cues, I think, until like 20 minutes in. It does have, of mm-hmm. course, the Huey Lewis Power of Love song, um, which is used very artfully by the director. But, you know, there's no score. And, and if you'd have told me that, I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> yeah. I thought for sure. In fact, when he says in the episode, he says, you know, the movie opens up to this sound. And I thought it was going to be the little kind of trilling notes, the trilling kind of uh, cue that you hear when you think of Back to the Future, like that little do 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 do. You know, I thought that's what it was going mm-hmm. to be because in my head, that's what I remembered. I'm like, yeah, it opens up like that, right? No, that's later movies. The first one just opens up with the clocks. I was like, oh, he's right. There's no, there is no score in this movie until like 20 minutes in. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason for that, and he does a really good job. To your point, he he brings that up of of how music is not used. And I want to say, I think it's his episode on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but I could be wrong. But there was an episode where he talks about there's a specific instance where there was score that was scored for a scene, and he got his hands on it, and so he breaks down. Okay, here's the scene. As it is in the movie without the score. Or no, first he does it with the original score that was going to be put in there. And he plays it for you. He puts it together and splices it together and plays it. And then he plays the scene without the music. And he talks about why the composer or the why the director didn't use music in that specific case. And I want to say it was a Spielberg movie, but I can't remember. And so when he can get his hands on film score that wasn't used in the movie, he'll talk about it and like why it wasn't used. So... He does a really good job of of talking not just about the score, but also how the directors use the music in terms of the whole framework of the movie. Right. And I think, especially like Back to the Future, you know, the, the, the reason why certain motifs were used for certain characters, too, like Doc Brown, there's a background to it of like a ticking clock. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I never would have caught until someone told me. I was like, oh, that, well, that's kind of brilliant because it's Doc Brown. Right. right. And. You know, the music for the shark is, and I believe, and I can't remember if I'm, if I'm correct in this, but most of the music in Jaws, it, there's not a ton of music, but the only real music you get is when it deals with the shark. Yes, that the music right? is actually a cue for the presence of the shark. So if there's a scene, right. 
like the scene with the boys with the cardboard cutout, you don't get the shark theme there. Right, exactly. Yep. Which is, again, kind of goes back to the point of you're building a character, right? Using the music for the shark, which kind of ties in perfectly with Jaws being the fact that you don't see the shark for like the first 30 minutes. And even then, it's just kind of a glimpse, yes. right? And all you have to go through by really is the music. And that's just things you just don't think about. And that I love that he was able to kind of highlight that. Yeah, infamously, I think Spielberg said that if it wasn't for that music to indicate the presence of the shark, the movie would have been sunk because they just, they couldn't get the shark to work. So they had to rely on music and other things to, to tell you that the shark is there, which is brilliant now when you look at it. Of course, it was a necessity at the time. But yeah, he really does a great job of highlighting those things. And he integrates, when you talk about the production stuff, he'll integrate in interviews from other media sources right like from behind the mm-hmm. scenes documentaries or right. things from the dvds or whatever he'll include those when it's relevant to the music and the and whatever he's presenting about the music so i thought that was that was great and he doesn't just talk about the score he will talk about diegetic music and he'll talk about you know the the song score which in movies in the 80s in fact he does this, he does a couple episodes on ghostbusters which has a really has a lot of songs. That's uh, next on my list. Yes, yes. Has a lot of songs on the song score, which was kind of a thing in the 80s. So um, so he talks about that as well. It's not just the film score that he talks about. He, he focuses on the entire soundtrack, which I thought was cool. I think that's kind of jumping into that. One of the things I'm so glad he touched on when it comes to Back to the Future is the scene where Marty gets up on stage at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And <laughs> yes. he wants to play Johnny B. Good. And... He tells the the rest of the band members blues riff and B and uh, uh, something like you know watch from watch me for the changes and try to keep up right and magically they can play along with him for a song that for a song style they've never heard of yet <laughs> and I was always like that's got to be BS right. right like how is that even possible exactly and he actually cut and I had actually thought about that a couple of days before I even knew I was going to listen to the soundtrack when you subject when you had suggested it I had actually thought of this question and it's like one of those questions I've always had but just never got around to asking or trying to find the right place to ask that question and he covers that that yes that is very true they would know exactly what to do to play play with that song and I was so glad he explained that because I mean that song that song is a very important scene in the movie yes but for me, I was just I was just glad to finally have that bit of trivia answered. <laughs> and he not only explains that yes, that's legitimate, but then he explains how and like goes out and illustrates right. this is what a blues riff and B means, and and then he even counts it out as as they're playing. You know, he plays back the, that yep. bit of the movie, and and it's just like wow, because you're you're absolutely right. When he when I listened to that episode the first time he brought that up, I was like, oh yes, I always thought that was total BS. Like you just. Okay, sure. He just says that, and suddenly, magically, they can play Johnny B. Good. And turns out <laughs> <Right>. they can. <laughs> well, it always makes me wonder, too. Is like music, like, not as hard as I thought it would be? You know? Because, I mean, making music to me is just kind of like this foreign thing. Like, I'm just not a musically inclined person, but. Um, it, it, it there's and I'm sure there's people have seen the plenty of YouTube videos where 90% of all modern songs use the same three chords or whatever. Right. Um, and it's like, okay, well, is, is music actually that hard? And But watching or listening to this podcast and seeing how they use music to tell the story, yeah, it's very hard. Yes. It requires a lot of talent. Yes, yes, it's very hard. It's, it's more than just knowing chords, right? <laughs> yes. One of the things I really appreciated about this this particular podcast is the way he breaks down stuff that 
if you were to tell me that I would know anything about what a Lydian chord is or, you know, the way Dies Irae has been used in films through history to represent dread, I just said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And knowing that doesn't change how you experience a film, but it does change how you experience films that you've known and loved. You know, he was talking about, and it just gives you a new appreciation for the composers because he was explaining what a Lydian chord is and why it's beautiful and why... It, it does something to you emotionally. I've always recognized that a film score is manipulation. It's, that's what it's there for. It's to manipulate the viewer and to help them experience the scene in a way that the director and the composer wants them to experience it. But the actual mechanics of how to do that is fascinating. Like, it's not just, oh, this is a pretty piece of music or it sort of sounds sad. He can tell you why a piece of music sounds sad to your ear, like why it evokes mm-hmm. that specific emotion, which... Right. I'm that knowledge doesn't do anything for me from a musical perspective. Like I'm not going to go and become a composer now that I know this, but it's so interesting to know it and to understand that that's how composers are doing this. It it adds a whole new appreciation for film composers. I've always appreciated John Williams, but now I'm like he's not just a great composer. That dude's a genius, you know. <laughs> right. What's funny is that I actually watched uh, the only movie I've seen since I've listened to this podcast, I actually watched it last night. It was Gone with Wind. It's the first time I've ever seen it. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, first time ever. And um, actually, I, I actually enjoyed it, right? But which apparently is taboo to say these days. But uh, as, as for what it is, it was good for what it is. But one thing, it, I actually sat down and tried to listen to the music of it because after listening to his podcast, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to watch this movie. I'm also going to kind of pay attention to the music. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think there's probably been an evolution in music score. And I and you've listened to a lot more of these podcasts than I have mm-hmm. as well, uh, or more than I have. But listening to, you know, Gone with the Wind, which was made in 1939, so it's a very old movie. There's music constantly throughout the whole movie. Like every scene has music. Mm-hmm. And it's very, but it is very quiet. And it's almost like background noise. Mm-hmm. And it's just very generic Oh, I must be sad, so I'm going to have a sad song. Mm-hmm. Or this is happy, so I'm going to have a happy song. And I don't really think there was like any kind of character themes or any kind of music that leads to a transition or to like manipulate the viewer at all. It was more or less like like the same thing, having drapes in a window in a background. Like set decoration. Like set de- yep. Exactly. Yep. So, uh, which was very interesting to me. And it would be interesting to kind of know like if he, if he has a podcast, kind of like in the history of or the evolution of soundtracks of he, movie soundtracks he kind of does so he has an episode on uh, steiner Mike, max steiner is the composer for the gone with the wind film score um max steiner um i can't remember the guy's first name but Korngold is his last name but kind of the the the, the great composers of that early film era and um, and also Aaron Copeland, which interestingly, I yes. think, did he mention that on the Back to the Future? I think it was that episode, right? Uh, yes, because Aaron Copeland's kind of like the first American. He 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 made the the what would be considered the American sound when it comes to composition. Yes, He's kind of like the father of that. Yes, and when you hear an Aaron Copeland piece, it sounds like a film score. You know, like you can hear the influence that that has on modern day film scores and and right. why it feels like an American sound. And so, yeah, I would highly recommend there. There is an episode he does on Steiner and Korngold, and I don't remember who else he features in that episode off the top of my head. But um, he does kind of talk about the historical use of of music and film back in that era. And then also in, I think it's his episode on John Williams, where it's just about John Williams. I think he talks about that 
how that influenced him as a composer specifically. So that's a really good couple of episodes to listen to, to get some perspective on sort of the history of how we've gotten to where we are with film scores. Um, and there's been shifts, you know, even recently, like I said, in the 80s, you had a lot of technical or a techno type of sound, you know, a lot of computers and synthesizers and things like that were used more in the 80s, along with a shift to song scores versus soundtrack, you know, or film scores. He, he does a really great job of giving you some perspective, too, on each of those. So he'll say, like, here's here's what the landscape looked like at the time. And I know he does it really well in the Back to the Future one because the song score is really important on that soundtrack. In fact, the original soundtrack that released was mostly just the songs from the movie and with a, a, a few snippets of the actual, you know, score by Alan Silvestri. So um, I think, you know... He does give a lot of that kind of context to the score as well, not just, you know, breaking the score down itself, but what was the framework and the time around which this score was written and how that influenced it. Right. And one thing that's interesting, like me, and I've mentioned before, like I'm not a huge music buff, but I am a classical Mm. music buff. Nine times out of 10, I can usually pick out when you're seeing, when you hear classical music in a movie or commercial or whatever, I can usually tell you what it's from and who made it and whatnot. And uh, that's kind of like the only area of music that I like spend significant amount of time like trying to uh, not learn, but, you know, just to appreciate. And um, what's interesting is that it, it kind of going back to Back to the Future and the whole Aaron Copeland thing was that he mentioned Dvorak as well, which Dvorak, uh, I remember listening to his Symphony Number no. 9, which is uh, from the New World and his second movement in that. I remember the first time I heard that and I didn't know it was him at the time, but I was like, oh, that's definitely Aaron Copeland. Oh. And so I went back and I was like, oh, it's not Aaron Copeland. What I found out, though, was that Dvorak had written the New World Symphony, his number nine, and especially the, his second movement, because his travels in America. Oh, interesting. And Yeah, and so he kind of came away with that same sound as Aaron Copeland did. Just seeing this, America. This kind of, just seeing America and traveling America, hmm. which was very interesting. And, and I'm glad that he was able to kind of call that back to say, you know, <clears throat> or to kind of bring that into you know into his analysis of back to the future because there is definitely a kind of a, the Aaron Copeland you know bombastic American kind of theme to it right and um and for me personally at least when he takes music and kind of relates it back to the more classical era of stuff it kind of I can kind of start contextualizing uh, the music and the changes and where they came from and the inspirations. Yeah, there's a lot of mind-blowing moments that I've had listening to this particular podcast. Like, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it's just great nostalgia. You know, he's got an episode, a series on Superman that he did that's really great. He's got Jurassic Park, you know, all these movies of our childhood that we just love, but that were also scored by really talented composers. And that are so much more carefully thought out than I ever would have known. And so it's enjoyable to listen to it just because it's it's a great kind of, oh yeah, I love that music, or oh, this reminds me, you know, like when they play the Indiana Jones theme, I can't help but smile when I hear that. But to then hear the breakdown of the score and how, how just how smart these composers are when they're putting this together and that everything they do is for a reason was really enlightening. It's funny that John most of John Williams' most famous themes are marches. Yes. Yeah, he's kind of famous for Star marches. Star Wars, yep. Imperial theme, Indiana Jones. The Jurassic Park one's not a march, the, the infamous Jurassic Park one. But no. a lot of his famous <laughs> songs are marches, which he's, I guess he's kind of the king of the march. Yes, yes. And and he's, um, you have to listen to that episode on, the John, on John Williams, because I think he was also heavily influenced by, uh, oh, who was that composer who was just 
well known for his marches. He's mentioned in The Music Man, but I can't remember the name of the composer. But he's also heavily influenced by that, which just comes through in his scores, right? Like, you, like to your point, a lot of them are marches, and and that works really well for those those types of films. But yeah, I this is a this is a series I could listen to a podcast I could listen to at any point. Go back and re listen to any episode and enjoy it. Um, but I will yeah. say. If there's a negative to this podcast, there's a couple of small negatives. They're very nitpicky, but he doesn't upload on a regular schedule. So there's not any predictability to his schedule. He's been on a couple of hiatuses that were unannounced. He's on one right now. But according to his Twitter, he is coming back, I think, this fall. So we should start seeing uh, some additional episodes coming up soon. And it is an iHeart podcast. So you get a lot of terrible, dynamic, dynamically inserted ads. Not to the volume that we've seen on some of their other podcasts. But um, there are, there are you know, those kind of obtrusive, obnoxious iHeart ads uh, for podcasts that you probably don't care about and that have no relevance at all to this podcast. Like, I think... The last time I was listening to it this past week, it was it was recommending a Hillary Clinton podcast that's new. And I'm like, why would that be relevant to somebody listening to the soundtrack show? You know, like it had nothing to right. do. So that's just another downfall of iHeart. There's no congruency in how they put their ads into podcasts. Sometimes it's really jarring and weird. So um, so there's that. But there is a skip button, skip forward button that allows you to skip those ads. So I can I can highly recommend using that when you're listening to this podcast. And each episode, I mean, his series appear to be no more than three. Um, I, I don't think really any of his series go longer than that. No. Uh, and they're each about an hour long. So it's they're pretty easily digestible um, uh, to sit down and listen to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think you're right. I think the longest he's done on any one particular movie was three episodes. So, um, and a lot of them are just two. And I think he's even got some that it was just one episode. And, and, and it seems like the episodes kind of have a theme. Like the first is usually more kind of background trivia about the production and the start of the movie. And he may touch on the music some more. But whereas the second and third episode usually has a lot more meat of just the music stuff. Yeah. Um, so that seems to be kind of like the mode. And I think it works well for his setup that it kind of sets the tone of like how the movie got where it is and production wise, which has can can have a big effect on the music, especially if they're having problems, you know, nailing down a composer or something. And I think that's, that's important stuff to call out because sometimes the experience of a of a score, if you if you find out that, well, he wrote that score in you know, a, a few weeks because it came in last minute or something. I know there's been a, a few cases of that happening and um and, and he does a really great job of integrating that information in a way that feels natural. So like with Back to the Future, he mm-hmm. was talking about, you know, Huey Lewis being involved um, with the, the film scoring in terms of the songs that he provided, as well as, you know, obviously him having a cameo in the film. And, and it just fit perfectly into the story of the music of Back to the Future. So like he does a great job curating the information that he's going to include in the podcast. It never feels like something is out of place or you know, not really relevant or kind of was jammed in there for some reason. So he does a really great job in terms of curating how he's going to tell the story of the score. If you love movies and you love music, you're going to appreciate everything about the podcast. And if you're like, well, I don't care about the movie stuff. I just want the music. You might have a problem with that. But are you going to really listen to a soundtrack podcast if you didn't enjoy the movie? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. And even if it's a movie that you've not watched, I mean, I highly recommend if you're going to listen to an episode of this, watch the movie first if you haven't seen it. I mean, most of these are movies you've probably seen before. 
Um, but I think you could even still enjoy it because he plays the relevant pieces. He talks about the, he always sets up what, what scene it is. And, you know, so technically you could listen to this, I think, without having seen the movies, but I think you're going to have a greater appreciation if you have seen the movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So as far as rating, I think everyone could probably surmise what our review is, but I, I personally, I, I don't hate it. I think it's an excellent podcast and I'll definitely be uh, adding it to my subscription list. Yep, as much as I hate to admit it, since it is an iHeart podcast and I can't stand that network, I don't hate this podcast and I will continue to subscribe. So it, it is a shining star <laughs> in their their pantheon of garbage podcasts. <laughs> Have thoughts you want to share? Send us an email at whyihateyourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our website at whyihateyourpodcast.com. You can also find us at Hate Your Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Our intro, transition, and outro music is by Kevin McLeod and licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes for details.